Well, good evening, and can I add my very warm welcome uh, to Tim's. My name is Vicky, and I'm one of the, the service pastors here at the 6 p.m. service. And it's really lovely to be with you um, this evening. Really, really lovely. Um, and last week, we started a three-part series called A Life That Says Welcome, looking at the practice of hospitality. And last week we looked at this practice in the life of Jesus, and this week we are specifically going to look at this practice in our own lives. And we're doing this over the uh, three weeks by looking at three meals that Jesus ate with other people. So today, we're going to be looking at a story in Luke's gospel in chapter 7, and we're going to be thinking about a meal that gets interrupted. And if you go to the end of your pews, uh, there should be a a sheet of paper that looks like this. Or you could break the pew, that'd be great. Um, um, A sheet of paper that looks like this. That would save us a lot of money in the long run. Um, And um, grab it, and I'm going to read it. Uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 39, and verses 44 to 50. We're going to read this. Actually, let me pray first. I'm going to pray first. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive. Thank you that it is living and active. Um, And Lord, as we read a story of a meal that is interrupted, we thank you that you love to interrupt us. You love to disrupt. Um, Your spirit loves to move and to prompt and to nudge. Um, And we want to pray that we would be alert to what you want to say to us through your word this evening. Lord, if we need waking up in our spirits, we pray that you will wake us up, that you would interrupt us this evening. Amen. Right, let's look at this passage. Uh, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner. And we're going to jump to verse 44, and it's now Jesus talking. Then he turned, Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon the Pharisee, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman... From the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
As we looked at last week, Jesus takes the practice of hospitality, the practice of eating together, and rather than using it as a way of setting boundaries, of keeping certain people in and certain people out, Jesus uses it as a way of breaking down boundaries, of inviting people to come and eat at the table. And we saw that last week in the story at Levi's house. And we see it this week in a different way in the story at Simon's house. And we see in this story that the way Jesus, sorry, that the way Jesus did hospitality was socially disruptive. Jesus's radical grace disrupts social situations. The woman who enters Simon's house doesn't act in any way that is socially acceptable for first century Middle Eastern norms. Verse 37 strongly infers, if you have a look at it, a sinful woman strongly infers that she is most likely a prostitute, a sex worker, And actually, if you look at what she does when she enters the house, thank you, Michael, that's very kind. Um, If you look at what she does when she enters the house, it strongly suggests in the text that she is treating Jesus like a client. She is massaging his feet with oil, and she has let down her hair. Now, letting down your hair in that context was the equivalent of a woman walking into a house topless. It's erotic, it's a sexual act. And she comes in and she socially disrupts this setting. She is relating, I think, I think she is relating to Jesus as a man in the only way that she has been taught, in the only way that she knows. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do in that moment? He does Nothing. The New Testament scholar John Nolan writes, Jesus' passivity in the face of this behavior is extremely eloquent. That is, by saying nothing at that moment, Jesus says everything. And imagine, let's rewind, imagine what Jesus could have done. This woman walks into the courtyard, and and in Jesus' time, people would have eaten meals like at the Pharisee's house in a way where people could have come through. So that's what's happening here. She's come in. Uh, Imagine what could have happened. Jesus is eating this meal in, in Simon's house, and a prostitute walks off the street, and she starts in this erotic act And what Jesus could have done at that moment is he could have signaled one of the boys over, signaled one of the disciples over, and said in a quiet voice, could you move her to the back of the house? She can stay. I don't mind her staying, but this is a little bit embarrassing. Uh, Could you move her out of the way where no one can see her? Or as she is bent down at Jesus' feet, Jesus could have quietly leant down and said to her, I can see what you're trying to do, but this is not the appropriate time, and this is not the appropriate place. But Jesus does neither of those things. He allows her to show him hospitality in the only way that she knows. And then he goes on to make the point to Simon the Pharisee that she's done that. 
He says to Simon in verse 44, I came into your house and you didn't even give me water for my feet. Now, one-on-one Middle Eastern hospitality is that you gave somebody water for the dust on their feet. And he says to Simon the Pharisee, you don't do that. She wets my feet with her tears and she wipes them with her hair. And in that moment, what Jesus is saying to Simon is, she is showing me hospitality. He sees beyond the erotic. He sees beyond the sexual. And he sees an act of love and grace. He sees the heart of what is being done. It's an act of hospitality. But more important than that, and actually what I think is incredibly profound in this passage, is by allowing that nameless prostitute to come and show him hospitality, Jesus is linking his identity with her. In that moment, he is linking their identity. And it goes back to that story we looked at last week at Levi's house, where Jesus says, I came for the sick. I came for the broken. I didn't come for the righteous. Jesus links his identity with our brokenness. So just as he links his identity with the prostitute, he also links his identity with me and you and with the shame and the brokenness that he takes upon himself. And if you feel possibly, and I kind of slightly winced as I wrote this, If you feel slightly uncomfortable with me talking about you in the same sentence as a prostitute, then possibly, and I was thinking about this myself, possibly I don't quite understand my own brokenness. I don't quite possibly understand all that Jesus in his grace has done for me. Because as we think about this practice of hospitality in our own lives, this story is so important. It's so important. It's a starting point because it reminds us that hospitality has to start with grace. Has to start with grace. Because grace allows for interruptions. Grace allows for disruptions. I think grace is, by its very nature, disruptive. It's what we don't deserve. It's what we can't and grace is not transactional. It's all about relationship. And to live a life of welcome, we must begin with that deep heart knowledge of God's grace. Not just his grace for other people, but actually his grace and his love for us. I need to understand that. As I practice hospitality, as I try and do that, I need to understand God's love for me who I am in Jesus. And where my heart may have got a bit hard and a bit resentful and a bit bitter and a bit weary and a bit tired, I need to ask for more of God's grace. Because if we don't recognize our need for grace, then I think something happens when we practice hospitality. If we don't start from grace, putting it simply, I think our hospitality becomes patronizing. I think our hospitality becomes condescending. Uh, The writer Tim Chester says just that. He says, without grace, our hospitality, our good intentions will be patronizing to those we welcome in. 
Because there's a fascinating moment with Jesus and that woman. There is nothing condescending or patronizing about the way Jesus interacts with her. He is the son of God, and she is a prostitute, the lowest of the low in that society. And yet, what does he do? He lifts her up. He lifts her up. He gives her identity. He blesses her. There is nothing patronizing or condescending in that interaction. And one of the things I often hear um, people ask is, how do I show hospitality to those who are different to me? It's a really good question to ask. It's a genuine question. How do I invite people in who are different to me, who might be at a different life stage to me, who might materially have less than me, who may have a completely different worldview to me? And there's a worry and there's a concern behind that question that by inviting people in, we may cause offence. Now, sometimes I think we do worry a little bit too much about offence, but it's a good question, actually. It's a genuine question. And what will happen is if our invitation is not rooted in grace, when we welcome people into our homes and into our lives, what we are saying is, come in and be like me. Come in and be like me. Our invitation is rooted in cultural aspiration. Come in and be better. Come in and be like me. But actually, when our invitation is rooted in grace, we say, come in and sit at my table. I am broken. I am vulnerable. I am as in need of Jesus' grace and love and mercy as you are. And that is our point of connection. Not my beautiful home, not the money I earn, not what I can teach you, not what I can show you, but actually where we meet is our point of vulnerability, our mutual humanity in that I need God's grace and you need God's grace. And that is the starting point, I think, for hospitality. In verse 47, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And the opposite, Jesus is inferring, is true. When we know we have been forgiven much, when we practice hospitality out of mercy and grace, our hospitality points to Jesus and him and not to ourselves. And before um, this evening, we launch into looking at perhaps some of the ways we can do this, some of the ways we can practice hospitality. It's worth noting one thing that is really foundational to all of this. So this is kind of big red alert. Um, If you don't remember anything else, perhaps remember this. If hospitality is about extending our outer world in response to God's grace, if it's about inviting more people in, inviting the stranger, showing love, then if it's about expanding our outer world, we need to attend to our inner world. You know, we talked last week that being a disciple of Jesus is about being with Jesus, becoming more like Jesus, and doing the things that Jesus did. But I can see in my own life, I've been a Christian now for nearly 30 years. Um, I was a baby when I became a Christian. Um, being, a, being a Christian nearly for 30 years. And uh, one of the things that I see in my life is that when I try and do the things that Jesus did, whether that's hospitality, whether that's fasting, whether that's taking risks, whether that's sharing the gospel, 
but I'm not spending any time with Jesus. So when I'm doing the doing, but not being the being, so when I'm doing things like Jesus, but not being with Jesus, there's this pattern that happens and I become really angry and I become resentful and I become grumpy Vicky and I'm not very pleasant to be around generally because my heart is not being fueled by the love and the compassion of Jesus. I'm not asking for his Holy Spirit to come and fill me. I'm not spending time in his presence, but I'm also not talking to him. I'm not asking him. I'm not walking life with him. So actually, as we do the practices of Jesus, and we're called to do those as disciples, let's make sure that we're also spending time with Jesus, that we're being in his presence. That's a whole other sermon series. Um, Let's hold that for another time. But being with Jesus in the midst of doing is so important. So how do we do this? How do we practice hospitality? Well, hospitality is fun, it's adventurous, but it's also a challenge, and it does, I think, require sacrifice. And um, we're going to look at some principles, and I've deliberately chosen not to tell a whole load of stories this evening about how to do hospitalities. Um, I'm going to tell a few, but not loads, because one of the dangers around this area is that I tell you lots of stories about people I know and the way they do hospitality, and you think that's how you've got to do it. So what is descriptive actually becomes prescriptive. And the fact is, Jesus knows you. He knows your situation. He knows um, what gifts he's given you. He knows what challenges you have. He knows what struggles. He knows, your, he knows how you're made. And therefore, he knows how best for you to practice hospitality. So part of the journey of wrestling with this is finding some people to talk it through with, asking the right questions, praying, but also asking Jesus, how do you want me to do this? What does this look like in my life at this time? So talk to Jesus about this stuff. So what we're going to think about this evening is we're going to think about some principles, some ideas um, that might guide us in how we practice hospitality. And specifically what we're going to think about is the difference between entertainment and hospitality entertainment and hospitality because we do have to look at the culture we exist in in southwest London and we live in a culture where we are surrounded by entertainment and that's not just restaurants and cafes but that is the whole industry the hospitality industry hospitality has been turned into an industry foodies wine um Design and all the kind of social media that goes around that. that now, I'm not saying that social, uh, that social sorry, I'm not saying that entertainment is a bad thing. There's definitely a place for entertainment, but what I'm saying is that entertainment and hospitality are two different things, and that's something we've probably got to get our heads around. And I'm going to use some ideas that a writer and a teacher and a leader called John Mark Homer um, uses, partly because his church is based in Portland in the States. And if you know Portland, it's the hipster capital of the US, um, and it's a foodie capital. And there's some interesting similarities, I think, with the part of London that we are living with. So let's look at the difference between entertainment and hospitality. The first one is entertainment is about exclusion, Hospitality is about inclusion. Now, when I say exclusion, immediately we think that's a bad thing, but actually it's just, it's just describing what entertainment does. Entertainment means there is a specific guest list. You invite somebody to an event. 
And in social groupings, the dinner parties, the house parties, the Sunday roasts, the brunches that you are invited to speak to your social standing. They tell the world about the group and the social groupings that you are a part of or you are not a part of, depending on which invitations you get. Hospitality, the idea of hospitality is an open table. As many people as you can get in the room who can fit are welcome. So in hospitality, we invite those we know, and then what we do is we open the door a little bit wider. We open our arms a little bit wider, and we invite those we don't know. We start to think about how we can invite the stranger. And that might be the neighbor who has just moved in upstairs. That might be the new person that you get chatting to after church down at the rectory or just after church here um, in church. That might be the child that you offer respite foster care to. That might be the friend of a friend who is having a tough time. That might be the refugee who has just moved from Syria into Lambeth. Hospitality includes those we know and love, yes. But the key thing is it doesn't just include those people. Hospitality goes that little bit further and opens the door and opens our arms to the stranger, the foreigner, the immigrant. I was chatting to someone after church about this last week um, in the morning service, and she had said that the Sermon on Hospitality had kind of hit her where she was thinking about, really. And the thing that God had been saying to her is, you are, you've got a gift, of, you, know, you, you enjoy doing this, but extend the sight of your tent, was the words that she felt the God, Lord speak. Extend the sight of your tent. Open your door, pitch your tent pegs just a little bit wider. Don't just do it with the people you know. Open, open the door, extend the sight of your tent. Because it's fascinating, and I've no real answers on this, but I do find it fascinating that we live in a society that puts a very high value on inclusion. Inclusion is the buzzword of today. It's very important that everybody is included, yet we also live in a society that is one of the loneliest in history. I don't get necessarily how that works. I'm fascinated by it. I don't have any answers, but I want to pray and I want to ask the Lord about it more. How, how is that happening? That we think inclusion is the most important thing ever, yet people are feeling more lonely than they have ever felt. And I don't just want to blame it on social media. I think that's a bit trite. I think social media can be brilliant. I think it has some problems. I think it's a bit of an easy answer. Let's just blame everything on Instagram. Um, you know, there, there are some problems with social media and people putting up a mask, but actually I think the root problems are a little bit deeper. And I think we as the church are called to pray and ask and seek on this. The government have recently appointed a loneliness minister. And recent findings, interestingly, find loneliness at both ends of the age spectrum. So two-fifths of all older people, that's about 3.9 million people in the UK, say that the television is their main companion in the week. So 3.9 million people living in the UK would say that the main thing that they interact with, not a person, the main thing they interact with in the week is the television. 10% of 16 to 25-year-olds say that they feel extremely lonely in life. 
And one of the social demographics, the Office of National Statistics, that's really difficult to say, one, one of the social demographics that office identifies as at particular risk of mental and physical illness because of loneliness are young adults who are renters and who have little trust or sense of belonging in their area. Young adults who rent and didn't grow up in the area that they are living in, i.e. they probably don't have family around the corner. I don't know about you, but to me that describes Clapham. That describes most of southwest London. Young adults, renters, don't have family living around the corner. And that is the group that the government have identified as at the most risk of mental and physical illness due to extreme loneliness. Now, I read that and I think, how, as followers of Jesus, as disciples, how do we respond? How do we respond? And the first thing I ask is, as the church, are we good at recognizing loneliness? Or are we as equally impressed by people's outer worlds as the world is? Because actually, when you walk around Clapham, you don't necessarily see a whole load of people who look lonely. It's what's behind closed doors. And as the church, are we, are we any good at spotting that? Or are we as impressed as the world, in a sense, at the kind of masks that people put up? And I think my second question is, how do we respond? How do we use our gifts and our resources and our time and our homes to practice hospitality? Because I passionately believe that Jesus calls us to be a movement that doesn't just meet here on a Sunday. And Jesus passionately calls us to be a movement that demonstrates grace and radical love to those we live and work alongside. And part of that is inviting people into our lives. And part of that, Jesus says he puts the lonely in families, and he doesn't just mean biological families. Jesus puts the lonely in families. And how are we going to be a part of his mission in that? Entertainment is orientated towards advancement. Hospitality is orientated towards justice. And this is linked with the idea of exclusion and inclusion. With entertainment, we go up and down the social ladder, a party at a time. Hospitality, on the other hand, is about justice for the poor. And one of the things that most New Testament scholars will agree with is that Jesus took the value of hospitality in his culture and in Middle Eastern culture, there's still a very high value on hospitality. He took the value of hospitality, but he aimed it in a different direction. So rather than aiming it upwards, so hospitality in Jesus' time was about securing an advantageous marriage, a good dowry, or securing a business deal, currying favor. Rather than aiming it upwards, Jesus aimed it downwards, completely reorientated it. He ate with the marginalized and those on the edge of society. Rosaria Butterfield, who's an American writer, says this, radically ordinary hospitality, those who live like that, see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as the family of God. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. 
Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift for use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. I love that sentence. They know the gospel comes with a house key. When someone comes into the kingdom, they're not just welcomed into a connect group or a community. They're given a house key. You're welcome at mine. Come on over. And there's a sentence in that paragraph I've just read out that I think is radically countercultural for most of us today in southwest London. I read it again. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift for the furtherance of his kingdom. Now, before I say what I'm going to say, let me just clarify. I don't think Jesus is anti-home ownership, and I don't think we should all go and live in a commune. Just want to set that as a base mark, okay? It may be that God is calling us to live more in community. That's something some of us may want to explore, but I don't think God is anti-home ownership. However, I do think that sometimes movements of justice happen when idols are broken down in society. Justice flows like a river. And I think one of the idols for my generation, for the generation underneath me, I'm a little bit older than quite a few of you, um, and for the generation above possibly, but certainly for millennial, the millennial generation and the generation just above that, is home ownership is an idol. It's an idol, or it can be an idol. Possibly, because for many of us, it feels quite out of reach. Or if we have it, we have set our salary levels at a stage where we can't go down the ladder because we need to stay here. And because it can become an idol, it becomes the thing that we frame every single decision we make through. And actually... What this, what this paragraph is saying, what this sentence is saying, and what the truth of this is, in the kingdom of God, there is no housing ladder. There's no ladder at all. Because in the kingdom of God, your home is not your own. It is Jesus's. And wouldn't it be really radical and revolutionary if the first questions we asked when we thought about where should I live is Jesus, where do you want me to put roots for the furtherance of your kingdom? And if we are given a home, whether that's a rented home or a home that we are able to buy, how do you want me to use this to serve others? Now, it doesn't say that our living situations will look different necessarily, but what it does do is it reorientates the conversation. It asks different questions, and when you ask different questions, you get different answers, and I think idols can start to be broken down. And I think this is so important for us. I think it is so important for us. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all of these things shall be added unto you. And at this point, can I just make a little segue to say something about um, if you rent and you share with others? Because I think this is a particular area around hospitality that many of us do struggle with. What if I don't have a home that is my own? 
And what if I live with other people who may not share my vision for hospitality? And what if my kitchen is incubating various strains of E. coli because my housemates don't really understand that you need to wash up, you know, immediately and not two weeks later? Um, what, what does that look like? How can I do hospitality? There's some knowing, there's some knowing nods. Um, how can I do hospitality in that place? Well, for starters, I think there are ways to do it. I think there are ways to do it. We don't always have to serve a three-course meal to do hospitality. A cup of coffee and a slice of cake can be incredible hospitality around a table for some. But it can be tricky because actually sometimes the other option is to eat out. Let's all go out to a restaurant. But then can I include everybody? Because not everybody has the financial resources to do that. Do you know what's really radical in this situation? I was thinking about this this week. What, I mean, this is a bit bonkers, but I'm just going to say it. Jesus borrowed people's homes, didn't he? That's what he did. And if you got the 600 people in HTC and you looked at who had homes in different places, there will be people who have homes that I'm pretty sure they'd be really happy to let other people use to do hospitality. We already see it a little bit in connect groups. Some people give a home for a connect group, but we could do that more. We could absolutely do that more. Don't let where God has put you in your shared house is his plan for you. It's a good thing. It's a blessed thing. You are going to be amazing there. But don't let that stop you do hospitality if you want to be someone who gathers people around a table. If that's a, if that's a vision, if that's a desire that God has given you, don't let where you live stop you. Because the kingdom's resources, the church's resources are so much bigger are so much bigger. If you have a desire for that and you love gathering people around a table, let's think about how we do it creatively. Not really thought about the consequences of that, but I think it's good. I think it's good. Um, entertainment is occasional. Hospitality is a way of life. And on one level, that's quite an obvious difference, isn't it? Entertainment is what you do occasionally, birthday parties, dinner parties, but I think there is something here also about the difference between what the gathered church can do, we are now currently the gathered church, and what the scattered church disciples can do. As the church, we put on events. We did it a couple of weeks ago in Clapham Sunday. It was brilliant. They're fantastic. But we miss the point if we think they are the primary way in which we express hospitality. You see, hospitality can't be scheduled, it can't be administrated, and it does not need a church staff to do it. The primary way the kingdom advances through hospitality is by disciples doing it where they are, so in your homes and in your workplaces and where you are living life. Hospitality as part of a discipleship, and we're going to look at this more next week, needs to be a way of life and not an event. Not an event. Because entertaining is often scheduled weeks in advance. It's an event in the calendar. Hospitality is a rhythm of life that includes both the routine and the spontaneous. We all pretty much have to eat three meals a day, sometimes two and a half, um, seven days a week. That's breakfast on the run. Um, that's 21 routine opportunities for hospitality without adding anything to your schedule. Have a think about how you could use what you already do, what you already do to show hospitality to others. 
Entertainment is performance. Hospitality is about service. At its heart, and again, this is not necessarily a bad thing, but entertainment is about performing. It's about showing off the best, the best home, the best food, the best wine, the best interior design. Hospitality is about tangible acts of service. And this should be, I really hope this, is a really freeing thing, that we can demonstrate hospitality in the way that God has made us. So, you know, let's be honest about me. I can cook. I have a housemate sitting at the back, so she will testify to this. I can cook, but I'm, I don't love it. I don't, I don't love cooking. It's not a love language of mine. It's not a love language of mine. Um, I, can remember, um, I can remember writing an online dating profile. Yes, associate ministers do do online dating. Um, I can remember writing an online dating profile about a year ago and asking a male friend to read it through. That's a general bit of advice if you've ever done an online dating profile. Get somebody to read it through for you. And um, I, was, I said to him, well, what do you think? Is it okay? And he said, yeah, it's absolutely fine. But you need to take the bit out about you being a domestic goddess because you're not. Um, and I was like, fair point. Fair point. Um, so I took that out. Um, but, you know, so when I think about how I do hospitality, I'm like, well, I don't love cooking. I don't love cooking, but there are other things that I can do. And actually, my meals don't have to be Nigella Lawson-style meals. They can be pasta and pesto. Um, One of the things that used to strike absolute fear into my heart um, was the new baby meal rotor at church. Has anybody ever been on one of those? So somebody has a baby, and you get put on the rotor to do meals. Now, it struck fear into my heart for two reasons. A, that I was going to give a new mum food poisoning. Uh, Now, I've never given anybody... I'm probably painting a completely wrong picture of my culinary skills here. I've never given anybody food poisoning, so it's an irrational fear. Um, But the second thing was, I got caught in performance anxiety. I wanted to do, like, the best meal ever. And then I realized, actually, it's not about that. Hospitality is about tangible acts of service. Did you know what I did? I got a delivery. It's perfect, absolutely perfect. And um, it was in my old church. Yeah, it was in my old church. And I basically, I just used to do fish and chips or a curry. The problem with this was, is a lot of dads were like, "This is brilliant. <laughs> this is brilliant. Can we have a curry as well?" It stretched the budget a little bit too much. Had to stop. Um, when we entertain. There is a clear division between host and guest, but hospitality blurs the line, blurs the lines. This is the last thing we're going to look at. When we entertain, there is a clear division between host and guest, but hospitality blurs the line. Jesus was both host and guest. He gave hospitality and he received hospitality. And hospitality means that everyone can contribute as well as consume. You bring something to the meal, you chop some vegetables, you stack the dishwasher, you set the table, you create the playlist. Everyone can contribute. And on that, just as a bit of a final point, I also believe that hospitality rips up the cultural rulebook. Hospitality rips up the cultural rule book. We have something, and it can creep very insidiously into the church as well, that says that there are stages of life and you have to go through them at 
at certain points, and there's a right point for everybody to go through every stage of life. So you graduate from university, then you get married, then you have a child, then you buy a big house, then you get a career, and then blah, blah, blah. That's culture, that's not the kingdom. And the problem with hospitality is often people can feel left behind because they're not quite at the stage that culture should tell them they are. And what Jesus demonstrated was that you can be hospitable at every life stage to every life stage. So can I just give an example? If you are a single male here and you want to extend hospitality to families in the church, that is absolutely blinking brilliant, and please do it. Because culturally, I don't think that's always something that we would say, you know, you need to wait until you get married. You need to wait until you have children before you invite other people in. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. It's not the kingdom, it's culture. Actually, hospitality is about ripping up that cultural rule book and saying that we can do intergenerational hospitality. So we can have families and people who are single and those with children and those without children for whatever reason. And we, that is the picture of heaven. That is a picture of the banquet that will be served. Every race, every nation, every age. And that is what we are aspiring to. And I just think that's quite important because sometimes culture can be just as insidiously creeping into the church as it can in the world. And so we have to say, what actually do we mean when we say hospitality? And what we say is everyone is welcome, and there are no rules about what it needs to look like. It's about gathering everyone around the table. Francis Schaeffer, I'm going to finish with this. Francis Schaeffer is an American um, theologian, and uh, he wrote this, and I'm going to leave us with this, but I'm also going to challenge us with this as a prayer. Francis, uh, it's got a difficult name to pronounce. Francis Schaeffer says, when it comes to hospitality, don't start with a big church program. Don't suddenly think you can add thousands to your church budget and begin hospitality. Start personally and start in your home, whatever that looks like for you. And Francis Schaeffer says, I dare you to do it. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. Do what I'm going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. You don't need a big program. All you need is a home and a door that is open. And when he says a home, let's expand the definition of that. It may not be your home. It may be someone else's home that you're borrowing for the evening or for the day. I dare you I dare us. I dare us. I'm not sure you meant to dare people in the name of Jesus Christ, but I think it's a great idea. I dare us in the name of Jesus Christ to open our doors just that little bit wider, to open our arms just that little bit wider. Should we stand? I think there are moments um, when you preach when you speak, um, that you have a sense, and I'm having a little bit of a sense at that moment, um, that um, something may be stirring in people's hearts. And actually, on this topic, I wonder if what is stirring are more questions than answers. 
What does this look like? I don't know what this looked like. I don't know how to do this. So I'm going to pray now. And then after I pray, what I'd love it, if you feel stirred, if you feel the Holy Spirit nudging and speaking to you, I'd love to invite you to come forward and we're going to pray for people. Now, what I'm not saying is if you want to be a champion of hospitality, come to the front. What I'm saying is, if you feel stirred that there's something in this that you want to take further, we'd love to come and pray for you. You don't have to have all the answers at this stage. So I'm going to pray and then just invite people and we're going to pray for people and we'll just all pile in if necessary. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you that when we look at you, when we look at the grace that you have offered us, when we look at how amazing your grace is, Thank you that we have the opportunity as your disciples to show that grace to others. We have the opportunity to open our doors and say, come on in. All are welcome at our table. And Lord, I want to pray that you would stir something in us. Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, I dare us in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, maybe this be something that transforms our communities and our workplaces and our cities. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that this is all about your grace. All about your grace. And we want to bless what you are already doing. We don't want to churn things up or kind of hype things up. But actually, Lord, if you are speaking, and we know you are, if you are stirring things in us, questions, things we may need to lay down, Lord, if you are stirring, I just pray that you'll continue to do that. And if, if that is you, if the bank can come up, that would be great. If that is you, can I encourage you Uh, now just to to come out from where you are um, and we'd love um, to pray for you as I say you may have more questions and answers at this stage but if the Lord is stirring something in your heart about hospitality and community and opening your doors and your arms just that little bit wider why don't you come to the front uh, and the band are gonna just start playing and then we'll pray for people